JM in the AM Friday morning. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I speak to Malcolm off the air for about uh, half a minute, and all I can determine is that I'm getting old. <laughs> we just, Malcolm Holine and I just played Jewish geography for about 30 seconds, and you cannot imagine how many people <laughs> we either know or are related to or how many came up in that conversation. Uh, pretty amazing. By the way, on the subject of uh, Jewish geography and knowing families and wishing Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov going out to Leora and Shmuel. Um, uh, and their families. Now, Shmuel is Malcolm's grandson. Got to make sure I get this right. And uh, they are celebrating their engagement. So, Leora and Shmuel Mazal Tov uh, to you, your parents, and your extended families from all of us here at JM in the AM. And yes, as I said to Malcolm, the... Uh, one of the transitions in life is when you don't, when you no longer uh, know the um, uh, the parents' generation, but you are most friendly with the grandparents' generation. Then you <laughs> then you know you're getting old. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays at seven forty a.m. Eastern Time with the weekly update at JM in the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, and thank you, and Mazel Tov to Leor Adler and to Shmubak, and uh, may everybody listening and all of Kalyatsar only have Simachot. We had enough other things in the past year. Amen to that. Times are different, though. Time does march on. When I saw this morning the uh, report, I don't know if report's the right word. I think it was more conjecture, frankly, but you know, Malcolm, that... Um, Israelis traditionally have taken elections and the responsibility to vote very, very seriously. Uh, this morning's article that I saw basically said that there are plenty of Israelis who are set to leave because you know the airports supposedly are opening up early next week, and they have no plans to return to vote in the election. What's your reaction to that? Well, they figure they can vote in September again when the next election comes. <laughs> For one thing. Second of all, they, they you know they see that the outcome is in doubt, which makes their vote all the more important, not less important. But being the fourth election in a short period of time, people are getting frustrated, and they, you're right, they don't feel the same motivation, and they don't see a difference being made by the outcome of the election. Right now, it's it's undetermined. The right would probably have uh, 62 votes, but it doesn't mean that they would put Netanyahu at the head of the government. And therefore, could be indeterminate for a long time, and there could be a lot of jockeying for to get a coalition together. So uh, I think that that's reflected, and also they're obviously very frustrated by the by the clampdown and the inability to travel to see friends. To and Israelis have a penchant for traveling, regardless. So they go away for Pesach and they just keep going. I guess. Yeah, they're not coming back. I um, I also, by the way, have this desire to uh, uh, to get out and to uh, to travel. Go to bit. Israel. Did you see the? I don't know if you saw the article that I saw, but apparently uh, the cruise industry is testing out to see if Israelis want to uh, uh, go ahead and uh, and travel and enjoy cruise vacations. And apparently, the answer is a resounding yes. <laughs> and, and in terms of uh, a Broadway opening in New York and so many other things opening around the world, I don't think there's any. 
Uh, I don't think anybody has uh, uh, um, uh, anything but a feeling of I just got to get out, got to get out and do something. And in some cases, that literally means taking a trip for a week or two, not just going out for a night. But people are just anxious to get out for a week or two and to travel and to... And but your just... reference to the cruise ship is very important. It shouldn't take it lightly about what it means because it has other implications, which are not obviously you know so obvious. Perhaps uh, you're right. Uh, they expect fifty thousand people to go on those cruises, which are going to leave from Haifa and stop at the various Greek islands and roads and other places. And I guess ultimately in Athens and uh, or nearby, and then come back. But. This is something that we have talked to the cruise lines for many years to trying to get them to break the isolation of Israel. There used to be cruises, boats going into Haifa many years ago, and now Ashtad, I think, uh, also can accommodate them. But this is very significant because this is very much in keeping with something I've talked about for years and we've been working on for more than a decade in the Mediterranean Initiative and an expansion of the Abraham Accords, possibly, when these ships will also be able to visit uh, other ports in the region, including Egypt, including Morocco, including Tunisia, et cetera, and ultimately many others, but also the European countries who are interested in it. It, it is um, the fact that 50,000 people are expected this year in an initial year is a very good indication, but it further breaks the isolation. It, cre- it creates this community of the Mediterranean away from the Middle East, and, and you know, it has economic, political, security, every implication possible, energy. Uh, but I take it as a, as a very significant uh, development. Until now, major cruise lines would not start cruises from Israel? Right. They didn't even visit Israel because of the security situation, because of uh, other concerns, because then the Arab states wouldn't let them come. Do you think this development would have happened without COVID? Because apparently they're, you know, again, anxious to get these travelers. And obviously, as you just indicated, Israel is filled with a lot of potential travelers. If not for COVID, would this ever have happened? I, I can't speculate because I don't know, because we didn't try it without COVID. But we did try for years to get this going. And... I think that that, uh, the Abraham Accords, I think the whole change in climate and the the economic success of Israel that people can afford, and I don't think it's that expensive to go on these Mediterranean cruises. And think on the other side, in the Red Sea, that we could start having cruises that would go to Sharm el-Sheikh, Aqaba, to the new city, Neom, in Saudi Arabia, that would go down further in the Red Sea, where people could go snorkeling and do all sorts of things that, I mean, great opportunities abound for for changing the region. So on the optimistic uh, vantage point, uh, COVID may have accelerated this. It may have... Absolutely. I think the pent-up demand, and we'll see it with airlines, we'll see it with others. Everybody's chomping at the bit to get back into Israel. And as you know, American Airlines is going to start flying directly to Israel. You think there'll be a major change in prices to Israel via airplane or or likely around the same what it's always been? No, I don't think it's it's going to come down any. No, that I get. Uh, that I get. But, it's, never it's, done. but it's not going to be double the price to get to Israel in the first six months, will it? No, I don't think so. No. so it'll be around what we're used to, I guess. Right. And, and you know, I'll extend it. If all those who had matmit points, they're extended for uh, another half year 
more. Well, as soon as I so figure out how to use, use them, as soon as I figure out how to use my bid points, trust me, I'll be very happy about that. But <laughs> all you got to do is check with Al. They'll tell you really? right away. They're very good at it. Malcolm, interesting. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll, I'll try to implement that to just go directly to Al and see if they can help me with that. Uh, it's always been so confusing to me. Maybe it's me, Malcolm. Maybe it's me. Could be. When I hear it, you, you know. Um, well, what was your reaction to what happened on Saturday Night Live? Look, I think it's, you know, people can dismiss a lot as humor or under the cover of humor. But today, when everything is being challenged, for somebody to say that and to do it in such a dismissive way when it, in fact, is at the core of anti-Semitic, blatantly anti-Semitic campaigns. It's part of the delegitimization effort. They picked up this issue of of Israel's uh, not only not complimenting them on the remarkable record of vaccination, and the prime minister was on Fox News and spoke about it, and I think very effectively uh, told the story, you know, that they that they got ahead of the curve, they, they, the curve and they were um, vaccinating in a very organized way. The army, they set up these tents, and people were able just to come. And uh, unlike other places, they didn't waste them, those that weren't um, used, because right. people would just wait. And at night, they would just take everybody and use them up, yep. um, which is a, a huge difference, because I know even one place not far from here where at night they uh, they had it supposed because of the refrigeration issue. And instead started keeping a list, and people would just be notified, you know, it's 6 o'clock, come, and you can get a shot. Yep. Uh, but but I think the the um, Israel's record on this has also became a liability, because they said, oh, you see, Israel, you know, because the prime minister was ahead of the curve and negotiated right away and bought up huge amounts from each of the companies to be prepared. Others didn't. They waited. So for Saturday Night Live to say it's the half-dead Jews when, A, it's so contrary to the fact the Arabs in Israel were being inoculated in the same pace. They were inoculated this week. 50,000 Palestinian workers who come into Israel. Next week, thousands more will be. But it's the fact that this was at the core of an anti-Semitic campaign to say that, again, Israel's yep. apartheid, Israel they, delegitimized. They, they jumped on the blood libel bandwagon. Simple as right. that. Simple exactly. as that. And I, you know, I spoke at the rally on Saturday night outside of NBC Studios, and I, and I took it personally for a bigger reason. It's not just the vaccinations. There's nobody who takes care of their own like Israel, and there's nobody who takes care of everybody else like Israel. Any natural disaster in the world that gets international attention, the first volunteers who were out there saving lives are Israelis. Right. And, and to, to even suggest that they would put themselves over others or that they would not have others in mind and in practice— when it comes to the vaccine or anything else, it's such an insult. It's, I think every Jew should be personally insulted by it, by the way, that, you know, our people have had such an amazing international reputation, such a great record when it comes to this, and they a cheap line like that is utilized to insult it, it, the, the state of Israel when they when it's completely unjustified. And then, of course, as I said, the blood libel thing. I mean, one of the oldest, you know, tropes in Jewish history, or in history, I should say, they hop on it and... And go ahead and do it. And we've one thing, by the way, I was really happy about. It looked like Jewish organizational leadership across the board, and you you could tell me if I'm right or wrong from where you sit, responded properly to that episode. Would you agree with that or not? I do agree with it. Good. I think that they did. Um, you know, people can express themselves uh, in various ways, and they did. But certainly, 
I don't think Saturday Night Live uh, could avoid uh, hearing and, and seeing the reaction everywhere. Right. But it's not the first time with them. I mean, there is a history with Saturday Night Live of these kind of, you know, you can have biting edge humor, which doesn't cross the line. And especially they can't be ignorant to the to the campaign that has been going on in this regard. I think most of our audiences probably uh, doesn't realize the extent to which this issue around the world has been used to uh, to criticize Israel, to, that even members of Congress went and has spoken in the, in the halls and spoke to before the Congress about Israel's discriminatory behavior and treatment of, uh, you know, Outrageous. Of non, non-Jewish systems. Outrageous. I mean, it's un- unbelievable, but and you it, see how instantly it spreads. Residents of Israel, including Arab residents, obviously are getting the vaccine. They're trying to reach—I mean, I know you alluded to this earlier already in this conversation, but the outrageous behavior of the PA, you've said this to us for weeks now about how they will handle and have been handling their vaccine supply, but now it's a, it's an exposed story. They're literally, they're literally just playing favorites and making sure to get it to the, to the people that they care about and the leaders that they, uh, you know, have in their circle, and they don't—they couldn't care less about the average people that are you know, residents of uh, of those areas. And they refuse to cooperate and refuse to take stuff from Israel because uh, Abbas said this was a plot by Israel to, you know, get in. They he they offered to set up a place near the Temple Mount to to inoculate, and he refused because he said this is an attempt by Israel to extend sovereignty over the Temple Mount. I mean, it's unbelievable. But the media doesn't even pick up most of those things. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, on the election, a couple of things. First of all, is Netanyahu actually reaching out to some of the Arab parties at this Absolutely. point? Absolutely. He's reaching out to the Arab communities. He's visited half a dozen or more of them. Explain that, because I don't think it's happened in the past, or am I wrong about that? Uh, no, if you remember last time, it was a big controversy because he said that the Arabs are going to the polls. I think that this is a, a recognition that the other, the main Arab parties in the Arab bloc um, is sort of falling apart. They did divide, and that there were opportunities for him to to go in there. And he also provided inoculations, and they are appreciative of that. So the Arab now, bloc whether is, it really yeah. translates into significant votes, we'll have to see. But certainly, he was able to go there, and they they were yelling, "We love BB." What about a potential alliance? Is it possible that he'd consider a moderate? No. There's no, no such that, thing. That, that won't and what yeah. about the opposite? What about the fact that some would call him a political genius that he's now broken up the Arab bloc by, by you know, because... Well, first of all, they break up themselves. Secondly, you see the Labor Party now. The Arabs walk, walked out of it again, uh, and uh, there are they and they broke up their own uh, unified bloc. So whether he had any role in it, I can't say because it would be behind the scenes. But um, but he certainly sees the opportunity there. To, to get votes, and perhaps they will. The Arabs have voted for Likud before, and, it, you know, this is Israeli Arabs. We're not right. talking about you yeah, uh, and yeah, those, 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 be clear. Right, those who are eligible to vote, right. Right. Um, what about the uh, rumor this week that now labor will not be able to get the uh, required mandates or the required percentage to have uh, seats in the Knesset? It's going to be very interesting to see how the vote that the centrist left will, will divide up. Uh, Netanyahu obviously sees Lapid as the challenge. He did a, an ad, campaign ad in English, by the way, about the Lapid and why people voting for Lapid, you know, would be uh, detrimental. Uh, so obviously he sees that him still as the major challenge. Mayor Michaeli became the head of the Labor Party, and you know, each time some party announces or emerges, they shoot up in the polls and then they fizzle quickly. 
and I don't think that the I don't see that the Labour Party is gaining big traction, but those votes have to go somewhere. Now we'll have to see: do they go to Lapid? Do they unite? Do they try to see if there's one challenge? Because right now the block of the right is 62, but it's not. They would not put Netanyahu in the prime ministership right. because some of them have said they won't serve under that. So that changes in in negotiations. Or as I said, we may have to go to a fourth election. The fifth election. Which would be absolutely unbelievable. Um, do, you, do you think this issue of the, um, uh, the court approving of non-Orthodox conversions in Israel will become an issue either during this election season or as they jockey for uh, you know, trying to put together uh, a, a coalition once the election's over? Well, it's certainly being used to appeal to Western uh, Olim who may face the challenges involved. And uh, the court, you know, said it wasn't a religious decision. It was a judicial decision. Uh, it's not over yet, that issue. But the um, And then the religious parties use it to rally their voters, and because some of them tend to break off and vote for, let's say, a Bennett or a Bibi or, you know, Stephen Smotrich. Uh, so this would be a, a step by them to, to try and win back and assure their voters it, it, it will have obvious implications there, um, but we'll see. Well, I, I'm Never not, can tell. I'm not it's, asking. Not a, it's not a big issue for most Israelis. Right. This is not a Miyuhudi type thing which had international implications, right? This is a little bit different? It's still a little different, but it's still being uh, expressed here in, in uh, right. Especially, various protests and Right, which I get. But I don't know. I don't know if you want to answer this. I'm not asking you to take a side or a position. I'm just looking for an analysis. The fact that this never happened before in Israel's history, and now the court makes this decision, it tells you what? It tells you that 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 there's a different atmosphere, a a different type of society in Israel. Like, this, what does it say to you? Again, I'm not looking for a position or you to legitimize or to condemn what they did. Just as an analysis, is there anything that comes to mind where you would say, you know, this tells us that this is the way Israeli life is now in 2021? Well, I think that is a, a reality, and I think there's probably larger numbers of people involved because you had a lot of Russian oleum to whom this right. applies. You have other groups to that, that this would apply to. Right. And uh, so... It's perhaps a different demographic that um, motivates it, and I think that this is an activist court has been for a long time, right. and um, I think those are things that perhaps earlier courts didn't see it as their role. That's why I think the court is going to length to try to separate and to to define very narrowly what this decision really means. And the organized non-Orthodox leadership in Israel is probably a little bit stronger than it was in decades past, right? I guess a little bit of a different presence than they had. You know, years ago, would that be legitimate? I'm not sure that they're more organized, uh, more effectively organized. You have a, uh, a, I think, conservative reform rabbi running on the Labor Party list, right? But um, so it's probably more. I don't know that they that that really that they're more organized than they were in the past. So it's probably the numbers more, may be different. It's probably more the first issue where when you have millions of Olim, there's going to be, you know, <laughs> there's going to be demand for adjustments to be made. I mean, I, I, I think that's probably the most mm-hmm. realistic explanation as you as you just presented. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network and of course on the beloved NSN app. Why is Pope Francis going to a- Iraq? Vacation. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, I think this is a very important visit. People shouldn't uh, dismiss it because um, he's meeting with Sistani. This is uh, going to elevate Sistani considerably, I think. And the um, uh, you know he's showing the flag there. The, the Christian community in Iraq has has been under siege. Many of them have left. The, um, the various terrorist groups that operative, all the Iraqi Iranian militia fronts. Uh, have persecuted the Christian community there, which is very ancient and um, very substantial. The, um, so I think the Pope going there and showing the flag and talking about peace, and as the Iranians, you know, are trying to take over in Iraq, trying to play a, a bigger and bigger role there, and, and using it as a base, uh, as you saw the firing of missiles repeatedly at, at U.S. bases yeah. or facilities used by the United States troops. And America's response, which I think was very important, hitting uh, in Syria and showing that we're not withdrawing them, we're not going to let them just get away with with what they have been doing till now. And, you know, this the situation in Syria continues to deteriorate, if that's even possible. So Iraq is, is very critical because it is the gateway for Iran to Syria, the, the whole Shiite crescent, you know, to Lebanon, and the shipment of weapons to Hezbollah. They want an increased presence, of course, as Jeff talked about for years, about what they're trying to do in Syria and be operative against um, against Israel. And the, the, the you know, United States has drawn down the troops, but even a couple hundred troops really make a huge difference in Iraq and, and in Syria. Uh, the area where the oil and uh, is located in Syria, there, I think there are 200 Americans, but they really make a big difference in terms of, um, you know, the, the security situation and American presence in trying to block Iran and its uh, adventurism, which continues unabated. People, you know, we don't even think about how much is happening because it's not news to people anymore about their um, adventurism and their, their support for terrorism, their aggressiveness. You know, the, the, the report came out about um, uh, the responsibility on the U- Ukrainian airline. Nobody writes about it. Nobody cares. It's it's astonishing to hey. me. Yeah. People completely ignore it, and obviously, chief among them, the media doesn't pay and, any and attention look at, to look it. at all the revelations about their support for the Houthis and how the Houthis this week hit an Aramco base near Jeddah and how many times they've uh, flown uh, missiles against Saudi Arabia. Yeah, we attacked Saudi Arabia. But this week, the United States, after withdrawing the sanctions, now imposed new sanctions against two of the, uh, the Houthi uh, military leaders, which we welcome. It's a good move, an important move. But the uh, you know the messages that we sent initially that they thought that would be open season for them and that they could just uh, manipulate the the circumstances there, so so this kind of a um, sanction is is very important to say no you're not going to get away you're not going to be able to continue just to act in in this uh, terroristic way. In the big picture, how are these strikes by the U.S. and Syria going to affect a potential U.S. Iranian negotiation? Well, I think all of this really does have a role in it. Uh, as you know, the Iranians turned down a European initiative to, to have negotiations, even the P5 plus one setting or, you know, indirect talks or more direct talks. And they rejected uh, the opportunity um, to to have those uh, discussions, whether, uh, as I said, public or not public. 
So this is a, it is serious. First of all, the Iranians are, are, are now negotiating with the Russians whether to have another 20-year agreement, and the things that are not Russians are not rushing into that. And Zarif said, well, it's on the agenda. If the Russians want it, it's not on the agenda. They were sent the head of their marshals to parliament to Russia. Putin didn't see him. Um, and they, they, they use this um, uh, relationship. The Russians use it to manipulate the situation, although their banks are taking now ruble to rials, uh, which is the Iranian currency transactions, right. but that's, I think, more for their, their purposes. Then you have the, um, you know, the efforts that are uh, underway. They see that the Gulf uh, security arrangements are leaving them out, that the uh, Abrahamic Accords didn't break up, that there are more strength to it, 130,000 Israelis going to the UAE, that they are um, being rebuffed by uh, by uh, Iran, and Iran keeps putting out stories that that uh, you know the co- countries are uh, disillusioned with the agreement and this and that. It's all they're they're making it up, and it's amazing that the media never gets it. Israel talks with the UAE, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia about some sort of a defense arrangement, and they're writing the exact opposite. And the media buys it as if it's 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 a, a reality, as if it's the truth. So the effect on the the talks, I think America's saying, look, we're not going to negotiate the Iran deal, that it's going to be longer and tougher uh, until you you are in compliance. That and the Iranians are saying, no, you negotiate with us, and then we'll talk about uh, uh, coming into compliance. If you saw Israel and the U.S. reach an agreement that they wouldn't surprise each other on Iran that any steps that would be taken would be discussed between them beforehand. Was there there an agreement like that under Trump, or this is brand new? No, this is, it's new. It was between Gabi Ashkenazi and uh, Secretary Blinken, but there have been also other levels of talks on the national security level where they set up the working group uh, led by Ben Shabbat and uh, Jake Sullivan. Uh, You know, again, you're not going to see a headline for this. And now, especially that they found that Iran or Israel saying, and I think Erdogan spoke at the UN this week about Iran being responsible for this oil spill that took such a tremendous toll on marine life, on the beaches, on the uh, underwater uh, vegetation, all sorts of things on 100 miles of the coast. And it seems a deliberate move by a ship that came through the Red Sea uh, and was headed to um, Syria but turned off its transponders so it couldn't be tracked. And the whole time that it went along the Israeli coast, it turned off its transponders. And only when it arrived in Syria, that was on February 1st and 2nd, it dumped the oil off the coast, went to Syria, and now is in Iran. And there are pictures of it docked now in Iran. Um, and th- that they are responsible for uh, the the bombs that uh, hit the, you know against the Israeli ship in uh, in Oman, in the Gulf of Oman, where, where clearly either um, bombs were attached, those uh, leopard mines, I think they're called, uh, that blue hole from one side to the other. The ship is now sailing again. It was repaired, and it's back on its uh, runs, bringing cars to various parts of the, of the world. So the, the negotiations right now are not moving. I think that they're seeing the impact, perhaps, of the internal elections in, in Iran, that they don't, nobody wants to be seen as being weak when it comes to dealing with the U.S. Zarif continues to be the chameleon and, you know, switching what he has to say from one minute to the next in, in this regard. 
on the oil spill. I mean, so what's the condition? I mean, are all of Israel's beaches blackened at this point? I mean, is they the... were, were. There's a huge cleanup going on. It's very expensive, so that's why tracking the ship is important. Also, not just to see who is involved, but it's an act, act of environmental terrorism. Uh, but the um, but the, you know trying to describe the cost. Obviously, these ships are going to deny it, and if it was deliberate, they'll do everything to cover it up. But there was no other ship now in the region that looked as it could even be a potential. So the identification of this one is, is pretty solid, even if it's not uh, not locked in. And, you know, there's something else that people should watch. You know, that we have legislation in the United States that uh, could impact um, the status of of the negotiations called Inarna, but it stands for the um, Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, something like that. Uh, that was adopted after the JCPOA w- w- was signed, and it said that um, any agreement related to the nuclear program in Iran, regardless of the form it takes, um, would come under uh, the scrutiny and uh, demand congressional review. So it's not just that they can just move ahead with it. And the Biden administration has said that it would be uh, silly just to lift the sanctions and hope that Iran will uh, will comply. They know what they're dealing with, and hopefully they'll be tougher than some of those who were involved in the initial negotiations won't just do a reprise. But there is this uh, safeguard which uh, Congress enacted. Now they can retract it and undo it, I guess. But right now it's it's on the books. Interesting. What do you think of the U.S. accusing Saudi Crown Prince uh, in the murder of Khashoggi? Um, it's been it's nothing new, and it's been going on for a long time. And the question is now, what what does it mean? Do they uh, sanction him in some way? Do they? But wasn't uh, this punish? like wasn't this like an official recognition or an official uh, report as opposed to the? Uh, it's an investigation and then a report that made the accusation that tied him to the to the plot to kill Khashoggi. And um, yeah, but the question is, what's the ramification of this? It was wrong. You know, he's been condemned for it. Well, well, it hurt the Biden administration relationship with with the Saudi prince and with his administration. Of course, because, uh, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Already. And we but have it, and it, we have an interest in you know. I mean, uh, we keep talking about the the fact that Saudi Arabia is next on the list, and that's the the big prize when it comes to the Abraham Accords. I mean, if, is this going to set things like that back? Well, well, first of all, we've taken a couple steps. One, we stopped. I think the ta- we removed the. Uh, tariff exemption for aluminum to the UAE, and well, we're reviewing the uh, sale of the F-35s to them. We're holding up arms uh, deals with Saudi Arabia. Uh, we, there are questions being raised about the Western Sahara Agreement. So there have been signals of that kind sent, but at the same time, the administration, and this week again, came out in support of the Abraham Accords and extending it, and even talking about supporting Saudi Arabia-Israel relations. So it's not it's, lost yet. It's far from lost, and I think that the agreement are going to, going to get stronger as people for for all their vested interest, despite Iran's efforts to to undermine it and others that um, and the extremists within the countries. The you know um, I think that the the benefits and and the the more that they feel that the West, the Europeans, and others are pulling out, the more important it becomes to have this uh, relationship uh, w- with Israel. Has the ICC formally started to investigate war crimes in the West Bank? 
So the ICC uh, prosecutor, Ben Suda, who is about to go out, I think in June, out of office after nine years uh, uh, being there um, and being replaced by a guy named uh, Khan from Great Britain, who's considered better, that um, uh, so she didn't say, look, we'll put it aside. It's certainly a waste of the money of the and and change the focus when you have war, real war criminals that they should be going after and, and don't, yeah. but that they are they are launching the investigation of war crimes against Israel, which mean, and also by the way, the United States would be could be in the docket because they're going they're investigating American troops in Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, so people shouldn't think that this is just about. Uh, Israel, the Palestinians, thank the ICC for the decision. But again, the United States has taken a very strong position uh, against it and and condemning the um, the steps that the uh, court has taken. I think universally, those who care about the court and its original purposes, I mean, the ludicrousy is that, that the countries that are sitting there, like uh, Venezuela, Syria, others, n- never get put on the docket for, for the crimes that they have ongoing and are are committing. So they opened an investigation into this allegation of war crimes uh, by Israel, but also <clears throat> by some of the Palestinian, what they call militants, the terrorist organizations. And this is six years after it began a preliminary investigation of Israel and the territories. Israel obviously doesn't cooperate. And the prosecutor um, is said that this would cover allegations of crimes since June of 2014, uh, so before the start of the, the Gaza war that summer. Right. So the, uh, Netanyahu is very clear in calling it blatant anti-Semitism. There's no justification for for it, and the United States has said the ICC has no jurisdiction. People don't understand that this is not a pro-Israel. The court has no jurisdiction because Palestinians don't have a state. Only states can come before the court. Israel is not a party to the ICC. It didn't sign the Rome Accord that set it up. So, and and they have to give a state has to give a concession, a part of its sovereignty, to the court to enable them to be involved in the case. Because sovereign states don't have to, and and both the Palestinians don't qualify as a sovereign state. And Israel is not a member and, and doesn't want to belong. And I have to say, U.S. has been very strong in uh, in condemning it. Uh, finally, what is the significance of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism? It's hugely significant, and it's becoming more and more so as more countries sign on, as more uh, adopted. And you saw Secretary of State Blinken, uh, again, to the credit, came out very strongly. But he spoke about not only the IRA definition, which is a paragraph that defines anti-Semitism, but it also has examples which cover a wide range of things, including, you know, calling for Israel's destruction, et cetera, things like that, uh, or denying Israel's right to exist as uh, as part of So they talk about the definition and its examples, which is gives it a much broader scope uh, in its application. And the United States, again, came out very supportive uh, uh, of it, and President Biden has, has said it. Uh, so there was a lot of concern about whether that would be the case. And now more European countries are in fact adopting it. You can't fight something if you can't define it. This gives a, a balanced definition that everybody can look to and, and utilize to uh, identify, and especially, let's say, on campuses, 
and we've had now a number of universities that are signing on about 36 states 30 states i think have signed uh, or are in the process of uh, looking at um, ira definition kentucky i think was the first one this week to actually adopt it uh, and the this is um, so people should just take the time it's the international holocaust remembrance association definition and look particularly at the examples you'll see that why it is it's so significant malcolm i thank you have a wonderful shabbos and we'll speak again next week god willing Mal- great shabbos malcolm honline is executive vice chairman of the conference of presidents of major american jewish organizations he's with us fridays seven forty a.m eastern time here at jm in the a